So we're going to read Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And we're going to talk a little bit more uh, in a couple of weeks about Mary's amazing personality and amazing expression therein. But what I want to focus on today is God's glory and how God's glory is evident in the Son, Jesus. And this is the person we're going to be pursuing deliberately and with intensity over the next several months. To begin with, we understand from the Gospel of John, who opens his account of Jesus' life by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then later on, the same John writes in his uh, first letter that uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. So the Gospel of John and John the Apostle, has, he has a strict theme that he's really adhering to in all of his writing, even in the writing of the book of Revelation, and I'm in that school of thought that says he even wrote that, that it's always the same John. And John wants us to understand that this Jesus is God. Nothing less than that. That he uses word as a way of describing Jesus, not as a code language or anything like that. I've heard it all. He means exactly what he says. This is the word of God in the flesh. This is God speaking, and when God speaks, it's Jesus if you want to know what the sound of God's voice is like, it's Jesus' voice. If you want to know what God has to say, it's Jesus who says it. This is the deeply significant theological concept that John the Apostle wants you to grasp. That Jesus is literally the Word of God, the, the expression of God. That 
And, and I think it's sort of uh, remarkable that, that in the process of Jesus's physical birth, there includes a prophet whose voice is, is silenced. You know, we talk about John the Baptist a little bit in this story of Jesus. We can't really get around that. One of the things that comes immediately before today's scripture reading that I shared with you is that Mary has come into the household of her cousin Elizabeth, who is way too old to have a child, and yet she's pregnant with the one who will become John the Baptist. And Elizabeth says, and the minute you walked in the room, he started jumping for joy in the womb. You know, it's kind of a beautiful expression. But the other thing that happens is, is that Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, is made mute upon hearing that they're going to have a child. And he doesn't speak until after the birth of the child. And of course, the work of John the Baptist will be to herald the coming of the Word of God. So there's all this emphasis in Scripture that we can overlook on speaking and when to be silent and when to speak. And then John the Baptist heralds the coming of Jesus with a loud and clear voice heard in the wilderness and so disturbing that people from Jerusalem will make difficult journeys to come down to where he is to figure out what this man is talking about and exactly what his message is. And he'll stay on message consistently. His word will always point you to the word of God, Jesus. The other thing you hear consistently in the story preceding Jesus' physical birth is the juxtaposition of light and darkness. There's the voice of God that is heard as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and there's the light that comes into darkness. So we're going to unpack that a little bit here over the next few minutes. John wants you to understand the eternal nature of Jesus and he wants us to know that this Jesus is literally the manifestation, that is the making real of God's thought. Now before I leave this, just one more thing. If this is a difficult concept for you, just imagine the last time that you imagined something and then you went about making it real. You imagined a woodworking project. Uh, you imagined a meal. You imagined uh, a, a, a song, a poem. You know, think about it. anything that you've created started in your imagination and then it became real. This Jesus is the manifestation or the making real of what God has imagined, what God has thought. So here's a really profound idea. In Genesis, God says, let there be light. And the word God spoke was Jesus, the Christ, son of the living God. In other words, when God imagined light on earth, it was Jesus who became the light 
in the midst of the darkness. This is another one of those constant concepts that you find in scripture, that there is chaos and darkness and there is light and order. Or like, what I like to say is cosmos. Because I'm a word nerd, I like the way cosmos and chaos look next to each other and how clearly they describe two things. And I understand then that Jesus is the expression of God's voice and when God says, let there be order in the midst of the chaos, Jesus is the order. When God says, let there be light in the darkness, Jesus is the light. Jesus is, even before his physical flesh and blood manifestation among us, is present because he's the word, as John the Apostle would have us understand it, that came from God's mouth. Heavy stuff, but really awesome stuff. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. In other words, Jesus is not only the word that comes from God's mouth, but Jesus is God's majesty. I don't know what you picture when you think of something majestic and magnificent. I've heard music that was majestic and magnificent. I've stood on mountainsides and seen views that were majestic and magnificent. I've been overwhelmed by the glittering of lights when light is magnificent. And so whenever I experience the best magnificence that human creative ability can put in front of me, I'm awestruck, I'm inspired. But the Bible tells us in the Psalms in 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky or the expanse above proclaim his handiwork. In other words, God's creative, magnificent, majestic work done by nothing more than the expression of God's thought, which is Jesus's presence, makes everything that is awe-inspiring in the universe. To put it another way, if you see pictures of the universe that are taken by the Hubble telescope, you've seen Jesus's artwork. What a precocious kid. Even before he's born, he's out doing all the other kids. His artwork is way too big to put on the refrigerator. You have to have the biggest telescope people have ever made to see it. You can stand and look at the work of a hummingbird in front of a little flower in your garden and understand that Jesus did that. You can look at the fingers and toes on a newborn baby. My daughter-in-law is a physician and while we were visiting them this weekend, and I, I want you to think about what I'm saying here for a second. She's a wonderful Christian woman. She had to work last night and the night before. So yesterday morning as we're getting ready to leave their house, she's just coming home from work. And I said, well, how was your, how was your shift? And she said, ah, 
I delivered three babies. There's another one coming, but the next person's got that. I'm going to bed. I said, Katie, how many babies have you delivered since you've become a doctor? And she says, I don't know. Think about that. You know what I did that night? I slept. I slept. And, and probably not very well because I ate too much the day before. But, but she, she witnessed the births of three babies. When I see how fearfully and wonderfully made our bodies are. And thankfully, God has given me a way to appreciate all of that that is unique for us anyway. I marvel at the majestic genius of our God, and I understand that when he spoke, Jesus did the knitting and the stitching and the creating of it all. I don't presume to know how that really happened, but I know that when I see the most intimate, microscopic indication of God's handiwork, it was Jesus, the word that God spoke, that made it so. Therefore, when Jesus says to Philip, and I know I used this a couple of weeks ago, but it bears repeating, when Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied, and Jesus says, Philip, don't you get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. There is no mistaking, if you'll take the time to read Scripture, the fact that Jesus makes no hesitation about stating that he is God. I marvel at people who say, I think Jesus was a wonderful teacher. I, I think that Jesus gave us a lot of great life lessons and things. Jesus did not proclaim that he had a unique teaching that would change the world. He proclaimed that he was God in the flesh and that his expression of God's thought would change the world. And it has. Jesus said to Philip in response to that question, from now on you know the Father because you know me. We live in a unique time because when we talk of God, we can easily identify with someone who is God. We can easily hear the word of God spoken. If we want to know what God thinks about a thing, we only have to open our Bibles to the Gospels and read those words that were spoken by Jesus. That's a good place to start. He's the expression of God's thought. But now we have a problem. No, I, I, I want to I say one more thing before I move to the problem. This is why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, and listen to this, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to honor God? You want to glorify God? Confess that Jesus is Lord and get down on your knees before him. This is what that means. Now the problem, how do we reflect that glory? 
I've told you many times since I've been your pastor that it is my desire that when we worship God, it would be done as though we can't help it. I mean, I don't know what other expression can more succinctly identify the real purpose of worship. We worship God because we cannot help but worship God. When I've been awestruck by the majesty of creation, a man of words becomes silent. I like words, you know that. But I become silent because of the awe that I feel in the presence of God. It's worship. Jesus once was on a mountaintop with a few of his closest friends and transfigured right before their eyes into his true nature so that his glory was all they could see. And it was so overwhelming they laid on their faces before him in silent wonder. Moses, upon climbing the mountaintop and hanging out with God for days on end, came down to the people and they were frightened because he had this glow coming from him that they'd never seen on another human face and it frightened them so that they made him wear some sort of covering over his face to mute the glow. Now, perhaps if we were trying to create that sort of Shekinah glory in our own lives and, and we really thought that we might glow in such a visible way, it might frighten us or it might intrigue us because if that happens, then I don't have to be so skillful and, and thoughtful about how I conduct myself. The glow will tell the story, you know. But then I remember that Jesus said, it's not going to be like Moses for you. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You know, the first time that passage really hit home for me, I was in Israel on my very first trip there. And we were riding the bus late at night and heading back to the hotel. And we were going across the countryside. And it just so happens that that like out in the far west of our country, there can be long distances between cities and towns. And, and literally, there's nothing but darkness outside the bus. And then I see up on a hill, a little cluster of lights. And all of a sudden, that passage came to me, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, those are, that's a city on a hill up there, glowing in the light. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Please don't make jokes right now. When I came out of the tunnel, the first time I'd ever seen that city, it was like going from darkness to an amazing view of this glowing city. If you've never been to Pittsburgh, make sure the first time you go, you enter through the tunnel, the Fort Pitt Tunnel, because you'll be in this little narrow tunnel and the droning sound will be going, and then all of a sudden, boom, there's this beautiful city just glowing at you. Jesus says, you can't hide that. You shouldn't hide that. He says that we are, through him, the expression of God's glory. In other words, before Jesus saves us, before he breathes the Holy Spirit and then sends the Holy Spirit into the church, initiating what we call the church age, before all of that, he was the expression of God's mind 
God's creative energy. But because of him, we have joined him in becoming that. Now we're the word of God made flesh. You hear Jesus making the transition? First it was me, he says. Now it's everybody who claims to be aligned with me. Therefore, our goal is what we call sanctification, meaning the changing of our nature completely so that everything that we do and say is a reflection of God's glory. We are to reflect God's glory. No wonder then Mary, having realized that she'd become partners with God in God's plan, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I love that word. She says, magnifies the Lord. What does magnification do? It's become very important to me in the last 10 years or so. It makes things that are fuzzy clearer. Thank God for this magnification I have on my nose right now because I couldn't read the words of my own sermon notes without it. Magnification makes things that were not clear easier to see. If her soul magnifies the Lord, then what is she saying? She's saying now the Lord is going to be even easier to see. Does your soul magnify the Lord? Does mine? Do you see the Lord more clearly because of anything I do? Does the Lord become more clear to the people around you because of anything you say or do? This is what it means to radiate the glory of God, to magnify. There are two things you need to see something clearly. If you've ever looked in a microscope, you know what I'm talking about. You need magnification and you need light. No wonder Jesus says you're the light of the world. No wonder Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So why isn't that happening in church anymore? A.W. Tozer was an American pastor. He was an author, a magazine editor. He was a big deal back in the 50s. A great spokesman for the Lord, you might say. And writing in the 50s, now, now if you're younger, I, I beg your pardon here, but I know a lot of church people who remember when the church was awesome back in the 50s. A lot of people remember when America was awesome back in the 50s, you know. There's something about the late 40s and early 1950s that just says this was the glory days of America. And the glory days of the church in America and this is when A.W. Tozer wrote these words. The message of this book does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church some years and is steadily growing worse. This is 1952 or so. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to, utterly un, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little, without her knowledge and her very unawareness, only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. 
A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from one basic error in religious thinking. Please listen to this part carefully. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life and the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to self-confident, bustling worshipers in this middle period of the 20th century. You hear that? Self-confident, bustling worshipers. I'm going to make a very slight digression and tell you that I wrote a very controversial paper in seminary, controversial among my colleagues, because I dared to suggest that the best and the worst thing that ever happened to America was winning World War II. Tozer just backed me up on this in a way, because we had no choice but to win that war, but when we won that war, we thought we were pretty awesome. We thought God must really love us. And then we proceeded to live like a nation that was just a little bit better. Even blessed better by God. And so we produced subsequent generations of entitlement. Now all of a sudden we don't know who God is and here's a sobering thought. There is going to be a day I fear when some people will encounter God face to face and they will look at God and say, I don't know you. And Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, God will look at them and say, I don't know you either. Won't that be tragic? Won't that be the most unbelievable tragedy of all time. So here's the message today. Jesus is the glory of God expressed in creative works of majesty and mercy. And at our best, humans are the creative work of God's majesty and mercy. We build things that glorify God, and we do things that glorify God. If we are to be Jesus on the earth today, in the flesh, if we are, in fact, the continuation of the story of this Jesus we're getting to know, then we live at a time when we are the Jesus we're getting to know, according to Jesus' expectation. And so you want to know Jesus? You want to know better who this Jesus is that we talk about, that we've done all this for and in the name of? Find some person who is a godly, living witness to God's glory as they seek to live in imitation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're supposed to be. And that's why we like to say things like, you know, this really isn't about us. Let us pray. Well, God, you've given us a hard word today, but one worth remembering. Your word is Jesus expressed today through your humble servant. 
And therefore, we pray that your word is all that people hear and retain. Well, God, have mercy on me and make me your instrument of grace, I pray, for the namesake of our Lord and Savior Jesus, whom we imitate and glorify. Amen. Thank you.